Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, found on page 1006 in your pew Bible. Please stand. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 8. Excuse me, 10. 10? Is that what you read, Royce? 10? Hebrews 10, and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word you speak. And so, Lord, would we hear. Would you be with us by your spirit to help us see and hear you this morning? And to change our hearts as we see and hear your voice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when my parents were married nearly 50 years ago, um, like a lot of couples starting out, they had virtually nothing. And so for their first Christmas, which was just about a month after their wedding, uh, their only gift to each other was to buy a board game that they could play together the game of Monopoly. And as a kid, I remember playing with that very Monopoly set that was their first Christmas present to each other. Sometimes playing the actual game Monopoly, but more often than not, just playing with the paper money that comes with Monopoly, because that was a lot of fun, you know, pretending that you had cash, you know. Um, But if you were to take some of that Monopoly money and walk into the local grocery store, grab a Snickers, and 
throw down some of that pink and orange dough, you would probably get some chuckles or, you know, a sympathetic, aw, isn't that cute? What you wouldn't get is a Snickers bar. (laughs) Because even if you had the right amount of money, it's the wrong kind of money. It's the wrong currency. And so, therefore, you can't actually make a payment with that. In our relationship with God, as humans made in His image for His glory, and yet separated from Him by our sin, and guilty of high treason against His throne, there is a payment that every human being owes. A debt to God as a result of our sin. But so often we come to God with the equivalent of monopoly money, with our good deeds, with our religious works, with our our social justice advocacy, as though if we could just come up with the right amount, that we're somehow going to make up to God and, and, and make up for our sin and pay our debt. Similar to those who were trying to convince the, the Hebrews here that, that the sacrifices of the Old Covenant we're enough to pay their debt. But even if we could come up with the right amount, the right dollar figure, which we can't because the debt's too big, what we offer to God is the wrong currency, the wrong kind of offering. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that there's only one acceptable currency that's truly able to pay the debt of our sin. Only one sacrifice that's actually enough to perfect for all time, all God's people, for an abiding relationship with Him. And that is the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And our passage makes that case in two movements, in two sections. First, in verses 1 through 4, we see the insufficiency of sacrifices under the Old Covenant. How offering sacrifices under the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai is a never-ending job with an unhappy result because it trades in the wrong kind of currency. And then in verses 5 to 18, we see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice of himself in a new covenant and how his sacrifice deals in the correct currency such that he has finished the job with the happiest of results. And so we'll start with the insufficiency of the old covenant sacrifices in verses 1 to 4. When I was, um, when I was young, I had a friend whose job was mowing the local cemetery. And for a small town, it was a pretty big cemetery. It was like 40 acres. And that was his job, was to mow the cemetery. And it took him so long to mow it that as soon as he got done, it was time to start over and, and, and keep doing it. It was literally a never-ending job. So it was with the sacrifices made under the Old Covenant. It was a never-ending job. Uh, If you've been with us through Hebrews, or if you've spent any time in some of the Old Testament books like Exodus or Leviticus, 
you'll remember how as part of God's deal with ancient Israel, that he would be their God and they would be his people, he gave them a priesthood and a system of sacrifices so that it was possible for a holy God to dwell among an unholy, uh, sinful people. And as we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that sin, that, that disobedience to God, that rebellion against God, that affects God and it, our relationship with God, and it affects us in several different ways. And so uh, there were a variety of sacrifices to deal with the effects of sin in this old covenant. Uh, sometimes sin puts us in debt to others. So our wrongdoing doesn't just dishonor God, it actually defrauds or, or harms others around us. And so some of the sacrifices involved a restitution, uh, a repayment of sorts, uh, making wrong, uh, making the right, making right the wrong that you committed. Uh, sin also pollutes both God's people and God's place. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how it dirties us. It, it, it makes us unclean and unfit for worship in God's presence. And so some of the sacrifices dealt with that dirtiness problem. They accomplished a purification of sin. But the most fundamental effect that sin has uh, is that it stirs up God's holy anger because it robs him of what is rightfully his. We were made for his honor and his glory He alone deserves honor and glory. But when we sin against him, we reject his rule, uh, we rebel against his kingdom, ultimately we're robbing God by depriving him of the glory due his name. That's treason against God's throne, and it makes God angry. In the same way that if um, someone were to walk into your house and say, I'm in charge now, I make the rules, this is my house and you need to get out right now, you'd be angry, right? That would not be cool in any way, shape, or form. You would be furious if someone tried to kick you out of your own house. Rightly so. That's what we do to God through our sin. It's our attempt to steal his throne and kick him out of his own kingdom to make it all about us instead. It makes him righteously angry. And it puts us in eternal debt to him. A debt payable only by death. And so some of the sacrifices were designed to deal with this most fundamental problem of God's righteous anger, what we call his wrath. That's what the Bible calls it. Some of the sacrifices were designed to deal with that in order to bring forgiveness of that sin, to cancel the debt. So you think of the whole offering or the burnt offering where the entire animal was, that was sacrificed, the whole thing was consumed, bearing God's righteous wrath for Israel in their place to make atonement for them. And so God gave ancient Israel this priesthood, this system of sacrifices so that they could have a relationship with him despite their sin. And the forgiveness accomplished through that system was real. 
The problem was that Israel kept sinning. No sooner had the priests offered a sacrifice that that dealt with the sin that Israel had sinned again, and so another sacrifice was necessary. It was a never-ending job. It's like getting a government contract to repair the intersection at Highway 27 and Route 30. I mean, that is job security there. It doesn't matter how much progress they make, they're never any closer to being finished with that. Or, or the Marion Street Bridge in South Natick. I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's this, you know... So it was for the, Levit- the Levitical priests. They were just never done offering sacrifices. And that's because, according to verse 1, the law that they operate under, the Old Covenant, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. As we have argued throughout this book, the Old Covenant was always meant to be temporary. It was always pointing forward to Jesus. He's the reality. Now, a shadow does correspond to reality, right? You can learn some things about the object that casts the shadow by looking at it. You kind of guess at its size and its shape. But that picture is pretty unclear. It's pretty vague. It's two-dimensional. It's flat. There's no color, um, no definition. And it can be very easily distorted depending on the perspective. And so sacrifices under the law, they brought real forgiveness, but because they operated in the shadow Instead of the reality of Christ, their true purpose was very easily distorted, and they were incapable of finishing the job. It was a two-dimensional sacrifice, not the 3D reality of Christ. And so, continuing in verse 1, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So offering sacrifices for sin under the Old Covenant was a never-ending job. And because it was never-ending, it had a very unhappy result. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. If you have student loans or credit card debt or a mortgage or any sort of debt, uh, your lender sends you a monthly statement in the mail or email to document your recent payments. And, and when you look at that statement, you can see that it shows you just made a payment. But what's the real impact looking at a statement like that has? It's not, it doesn't encourage you, oh wow, it just reminds you how much further you have to go. That's the impact that that, that often has. And, and that's what the impact of Israel's regular sacrifices did. I mean, yes, the forgiveness was real, but the ongoing necessity of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, it just it just reminded Israel that they're, they were buried in a debt of sin against God, which they could never repay. So instead of liberating or, or, or encouraging them, it just continued to bury them in guilt and anxiety. And all of this owes to the fact that sacrifices under the Old Covenant traded in the wrong currency. 
just as monopoly money cannot buy a Snickers bar or pay down your, your loans, so it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It worked temporarily and incompletely under the shadow. But if our sin is to be dealt with completely, if our debt to God is to be paid in full such that, such that the people of God are perfected, as he puts it in verse 2, completely absolved of our guilt and sin, charges dropped forever with confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation for us because our debt has been paid in full. If that's what we're looking for, we need a different kind of sacrifice. The full amount in a different currency. And that's something the old covenant law can't give us. And it's something that our modern imitations of the law can't match. The problem of sin is not unique to Israel. The plight, it's the plight of all humanity at all times, in all places. The Bible tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through, through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This isn't just ancient Israel's problem. This is our problem today. And just as the blood of bulls and goats can't take away ancient Israel's sins, neither can recycling or protesting or mowing your neighbor's lawn or reading your Bible or coming to church or teaching Sunday school or singing in the choir or preaching a sermon or any of that, neither can any of that, anything that we might say, hey God, look what I did for you, aren't we good now? None of that can take away sins. They're all good things, but they're not enough. And they're the wrong currency. And so what is enough? And what is the right currency? Only the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what verses 5 to 18 tell us. To make his case, the author starts here by doing what he has done in every chapter of Hebrews so far. He takes us back to the Old Testament again. In verses 5 to 7, he quotes Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And then he explains in verses 8 to 10, he shows how Christ fulfills that psalm because his offering is enough, it's the right amount, and he makes it using the correct currency, his own body. And so first we see the quantity that Christ's offering is the right amount. Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8 reads, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear, or literally ears you have dug for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So in Psalm 40, which is this cry uh, for help and this reflection on God's deliverance, the psalmist David comes to realize something about God's law. That while 
God himself prescribed the sacrifices and the offerings. It was never about just going through the motions. The sacrifices themselves were irrelevant if the heart wasn't in the right place. What God ultimately wants is not the blood of bulls and goats, but obedience that comes from ears open to hear his voice, a genuine desire to do his will, and a heart written on with God's law. Not the external obedience common to the old covenant, but an obedience consistent with the promises of the new covenant that God's going to write on his people's hearts. And that is what Jesus offers in his life, death and resurrection. He not only perfectly obeys every commandment, he doesn't just check off the box, he fulfills them, he completes them out of a heart that desires to do God's will. Jesus pays the right amount. Hebrews 10, verse 8, when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Christ came to give God what he truly wanted. Not a bunch of sacrifices, but to do His will from the heart. Something that no Israelite was able to do. Something that no other human is able to do. None of us obey completely, perfectly from the heart. But Jesus did it. And in paying the right amount, He not only fulfilled fills the old covenant, he actually then sets it aside and replaces it with something better. Something better. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Jesus alone has the cash to pay our debt. A life of perfect obedience from the heart. So he has the right amount. But it's not enough to have the right amount of money. It has to be an acceptable currency. If you try to pay for your gasoline uh, down at the Shell station with rupees or euros, it's just not going to work. Even if you have the right amount of rupees and euros, it's not an acceptable currency here. And there's only one currency that's truly qualified to remove sin from humanity. Only one kind of substitute that can truly stand in our place and represent us. The the blood of bulls and goats can't do that. It has to be a fellow human. Someone who is like us in every way, yet without sin. And so Jesus makes his payment using the right currency. His own body. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this too is anchored in Psalm chapter 40, though it's a little bit harder to see. Uh, You may have noticed when I read Psalm 40 earlier that when Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 verse 6, it puts it a little bit differently. 
Uh, Psalm 40, 40 verse 6 says, Ears you have dug for me, while Hebrews 10.5 translates that, A body you have prepared for me. And at first glance, it, it almost kind of looks like the, the author made a mistake. Like he looked up the wrong word in his lexicon or something, or he's just kind of playing fast and loose with the text to make it say what he wants it to say. And, you know, if you look at commentaries, some commentaries will say that. But the author of Hebrews is simply taking the imagery of Psalm 40 and applying it at a broader level to Jesus. The imagery of giving the psalmist an an open ear, or more literally, digging ears for someone. That's, That's the picture of God forming man from clay. If you've ever made a person with like Play-Doh, you know, how do you give them nostrils or ears? You stick your fingers in there, right? And you dig it out. That's the picture here. God is giving, he's, he's, Psalm 40 is using the imagery of creation from Genesis 2 of where God forms man from the dust of the ground to describe how God gives his servant the ears he needs to be faithful to the covenant. He digs them out. And so God's doing the same thing for Jesus just at a broader level where he's preparing for him an entire body to be able to do his will. A body just like Adam's, just like ours, so that Christ could make his payment in the right currency. Earlier in Hebrews, the author puts it this way. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus made his payment in full and with the right currency, his body for ours. And because he's done this, his saving work as our substitute is done. It's finished. That's what he proclaimed from the cross. That's the point of verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. When we were in between uh, churches before we moved out here back in 2011, I worked in a warehouse in the shipping and packing department for several months. And several times during the day, the manager would come by and check in on us or give us something to do And when that happened, you didn't want to be caught sitting down. Not because he was a mean manager, but because unless it's break time or five o'clock, your work's not done. There's no coffee time until then. No sitting down on the job. And so in the same way, the Levitical priests were never able to sit down because their job was never finished. No coffee for them. In contrast... Jesus makes one sacrifice and then sat down. 
Because with that one sacrifice, he did for all time what those priests and all those sacrifices could never do. He completed God's work of salvation. His life and his body were enough to pay the debt for all humanity at all times in all places through a single offering. That's the infinite value of Christ. And that's the infinite love of God for us. As verse 14 puts it, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And, and notice the, the already and the not yet in that verse, in verse 14. So we are still being sanctified, right? We're still being made holy, transformed to become more and more like Christ. It's not that, that the Christian will never sin. We do sin. But we're growing, we're repenting, and we're becoming more and more like Christ. We're being changed. And at the same time, even as there's a, an, a not yet, we're still growing, there is an already in that we're already perfected in God's sight. Through our union with Christ by faith in Him, our justification is already complete. The charges are dropped. Our righteousness is secure. Our status before God is righteous and accepted. Our sin no longer counts against us because it's been paid in full. To go back to the, to the financial illustration, sacrifices under the old covenant were like paying the minimum balance on a credit card that you still use every day. So they, they were just enough so that Israel could keep using the card, but they didn't make any progress on getting rid of the debt. In fact, it was continuing to grow. In contrast, Jesus paid the balance in full with one offering, then cuts up the card and throws it away, and then signs our name on his bank account with its infinite balance. He takes the blame for our sin and gives us the credit for his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. That's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it like this. For, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this great exchange where he takes our sin, gives us his righteousness such that we are perfected before God even while we're still being changed. And because our debt is paid in full, and because Jesus' saving work is completely done, his work produces the happiest of results for his people. Full forgiveness. Full forgiveness. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. It's amazing. And, and just a side note here, it, it, notice how he quotes Jeremiah 31. And then he says, and the Holy Spirit says, and quotes Jeremiah. It's a nice little reminder of how, where Scripture ultimately comes from. It's not just the words of men. It is the Word of God. And what does that Word of God tell us in Jeremiah 31? What does he emphasize here? He's emphasizing that last phrase, that, that the ultimate result of the new covenant in Christ is lasting forgiveness. Through the finished work of Jesus, God will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. Amen. The sins that keep us up at night, the guilt we carry, God will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. Not just the stuff of the past. I mean, Israel could handle the past. The Levitical sacrifices could handle the past. But Jesus forgives us, cleanses us for past, present, and future. It is finished. There are no more sacrifices necessary. There's nothing we need to add to Christ's work to kind of sweeten the deal. It is finished. It is paid in full. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. The happiest of results. The single sacrifice of Christ in history was enough to perfect all God's people for all time for an abiding relationship with Him. And so the question remains for us this morning. To what extent does this glorious truth shape my life? If you're not a Christian, you know, maybe you're checking this out or you're here because you feel like you have to be here or maybe you've been going to church your whole life but you've never personally met Jesus. If you're not a Christian, there are two questions I want to encourage you to reflect on this morning. First, do you realize your debt? Do you realize your debt? That all of us really have fallen short of God's glory. Sometimes we don't think we need Christ because we don't think we're that bad. Because I'm not as bad as that guy over there, at least. But we've all messed up. We've all sinned against God. We've all incurred upon ourselves, a debt that we cannot repay. And a debt that, that without Christ we will spend eternity paying for in hell. So, so do you realize your debt? Or have you just been throwing the notices that you get in the mail in the trash without ever opening them up? There is a debt, and it's serious. So that's the first question. Do you realize that? The second is, do you realize the incomparable extent of God's love for you despite that debt? 
a love in which he gave everything in order to pay that debt for you. He didn't wait for us to clean our lives up or, or, or pay him back, but he sent his son to pay the debt for us. Romans 5.8, we've already heard it this morning. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize his love for you? A love that's displayed on the cross. And do you know that, that he is offering that love and that forgiveness to you right now through faith in his son? Not what we can do for God, but trusting what God has done for us through Christ. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. Do you realize your debt? And do you realize the love of God in paying that debt? If you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus and and He is your only hope, your King and your Savior, there's just one question I want you to reflect on this morning based on our passage. Are you living as someone whose debt has been paid in full? Are you living as someone whose debt has been paid in full? Or are you still trying to make payments on it yourself? To chip in here or there? Or, or feeling guilty as though you should be making payments, but you're not? Another way to put it, is the gospel you believed when you became a Christian still enough for you to live as a Christian? Are you living as someone whose debt has been paid in full? There's a really helpful illustration um, that many of you have seen before, and, and now I actually know who to credit it to. It's drafted by a, a man named Paul Miller. When someone becomes a Christian, you realize that there is a gap between God's holiness and your sin. You realize your debt. But then you also, in becoming a Christian, realize God's love for you in paying that debt and how it's the cross that bridges the gap between God's holiness and your sin. But what's interesting is that as you grow as a Christian, your awareness of God's holiness grows too. You see more and more how beautiful and perfect and righteous and majestic God is. You you see how incredible he is, which has this funny side effect then of increasing your awareness of your own sin at the same time. Because as you become more aware of God's holiness, you realize how, how much further you actually fall short than you even realized at the beginning. And what happens is that if the cross is just about beginning a relationship with God, but not growing in your relationship with God, if our debt has not really been paid in full, then after a while, that gap comes back. And we have to find a way to fill it. 
And we usually do that in one of two ways. Either pretending that we're not as sinful as we actually are, or by performing for God as though to make it up to Him, to chip in on our debt. And that's where so many Christians live. Trapped in that cycle of performing and pretending, hiding who we really are because we don't want people to see the true us. We, we, we feel guilt and shame over that. And, and projecting an image of someone we're not so that we look better than we know we really are. It's this cycle between shame and arrogance. But what if the single sacrifice of Christ was enough to perfect all God's people for all time in an abiding relationship with God? What if the cross doesn't just pay the cover charge to get in the door, but completely covers us for all eternity? Christian, are you living as someone whose debt has been paid in full? Are you depending on the finished work of Christ for your entire relationship with God? Beginning to end, such that as your awareness of God's holiness grows and your awareness of your sinfulness grows, that the cross is what bridges the gap every step of the way. There is still no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there never will be. Rather, there is peace, there is joy, there is freedom from guilt and shame. There is confidence to enter God's presence with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If you're in deep debt to the bank, there is no comfortable way to walk in there and make a transaction. Because you know somebody's going to pull up your account and they're going to see what it really looks like. It's just shame. But if your account is overflowing, that changes the way you walk into the bank. You walk in there with confidence. That's how we're invited to approach God. With confidence that in Christ our account is overflowing. Not swagger as though we've done something but humility and joy at God's gift. A confidence and a humility and a joy that well up in a willing obedience to God, just like our Savior. Not because we have to, but because we've been redeemed and we want to. Not in order to add to or replace Christ's sacrifice, but because His sacrifice is enough. Because God is that worthy and His grace is that amazing. Are you living as someone whose debt has been paid in full? I hope so. Because that's the only real way to live. Let's pray. Gracious Father,
would you, in your mercy, show us the depths of our sin? Give us the courage to stop pretending, to stop performing, to be honest about your incredible majesty and our incomparable guilt. But don't keep us there, Lord. Help us see our need. And then show us, remind us daily that that need is covered in Christ. Change the way we think about praying to you, worshiping you, reading your word. May we approach with humility and confidence that our debt is paid in full and that Christ has signed our name to his account. May we never lose our awe at that reality. And may it change everything about us. May it change not just how we approach you, but how we approach others. Eagerness to forgive. Passion to share Christ with the lost. May we walk with you through what Christ has done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.